And welcome everyone back to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, attorney and healthcare advocate. Many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks. World-class web hosting and domain name registration. Learn more about them by going to pair.com. That's pair, P-A-I-R.com. Now, this program is devoted to the one issue which impacts every American, every business, healthcare. And this show, unlike many shows, is all substance all the time and includes healthcare news, commentary, and extended interviews with experts from around the United States who have something important to add to the debate on health care policy. And today, uh, we have some exciting news about the show. Uh, we're approaching the end of the first season. We define a season as being 13 shows, and we're coming up on number 13 in a couple of weeks. And I am delighted to report that we've hit our goals. And beginning this week, we are expanding our network with radio stations from across the country, starting with Carborough, North Carolina, WCOM, welcome, Modesto, California, KGIG, and there are many others in the pipeline. They're just getting themselves organized to figure out where they're going to slot us in. And within a couple of weeks, we think we'll be heard from Hawaii to Boston to the Deep South, even Oklahoma has some folks that are interested in the show, so we couldn't be more delighted Uh, We are also, uh, as a result, green-lighted for a second season. So we'll be uh, here right where you want us to be for quite a bit longer. And as we build up to the fall and next year's election season, who knows, we may go from one day a week to five days a week. So this show has caught the imagination of people across the country, and we couldn't be happier about it. Today we have a special guest. And I know I say that every week, but this one I think you'll agree is the extra special. It's a bit of oral history and an inspiration to all of us who have wondered if our individual contributions to the cause of justice, democracy, and freedom really matter. Our guest is Molly Rush, and she is special. So we'll talk about that in a second. But first, a little bit of news. As you no doubt recall, the effort of the president and House Republicans to pass something they could claim as repeal and replace of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act uh, went down somewhat ignominiously. Uh, It had 17% approval rating. I I honestly think that athlete's foot has higher than 17% approval rating. Uh, it, It was a proposal that the Congressional Budget Office calculated would would result in the loss of insurance coverage by 20 million people almost immediately. Uh, Most of whom work, by the way. These aren't people just sitting around. A lot of them work two and three jobs, but none of them provide health insurance, and and they don't make enough money to clear the the 137 percent of uh, poverty, which is what would have made them eligible for Medicaid expansion, or they they're self-employed, and they needed to use the exchanges, which is, by the way, what I do. I, I have my personal health insurance through the uh, Affordable Care Act exchange. Uh, also, it was a proposal that would have left 50 million-plus Americans without any health care coverage after 10 years, which would have meant we would be worse off than we were before the Affordable Care Act was passed back in 2010. It was a proposal, this uh, thing called either Trump Care or Ryan Care, depending on whether you liked it or not, uh, that was rejected by governors all over 
uh, the country. So we're going to be talking about all of this uh, as we go forward, not just today, but as we go forward. And it should be noted that over the weekend, over the Easter weekend, they were able to come up with some compromises but to try and entice more House Republicans to vote for this thing. And the only people they were really appealing to were the most radical right wing of the of the Republicans. And the president said, hey, lots of people like this. It's uh, something that he likes to say. He, always, he never says who likes things. He just says lots of people like it. So anyway, we're going to take a break shortly. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, our very special guest that's coming up and maybe a little broader historical context. So this is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. Join us in just a moment. The March for Science was held this weekend in eight North Carolina cities and hundreds of others around the world, but organizers and participants say it's only the beginning. UNC Charlotte professor Brian Maggie was part of that city's march and says he and other scientists are being reminded about the importance of stepping out of their labs and into public engagement. I would never think of myself as somebody who would walk in a protest to make sure that science is recognized. That being said, I think there is a role that scientists are learning to play in society, and it's more about community interaction and making sure we actually are talking about the work that we do and how it's relevant. Organizers of the march say they'll continue to fight for science that serves the common good, education that includes the latest in scientific advancements for students, and evidence-based policy and regulations in the public interest. The movement was organized after recent policy decisions and statements by the Trump administration that call into question the effects of climate change and threats to funding for some scientific research. This is Stephanie Carson reporting. I'm Stephanie Carson for the North Carolina News Service. And welcome back to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk. And a little programming note before we get into the meat of today's uh, show. Next week, we will be uh, expanding the way we do things here. We're going to be bringing to you some live interviews, not live, but taped interviews from the Trump rally, which is scheduled for this Saturday. Uh, You may have heard that the president is going to be celebrating the accomplishments of his first 100 days by coming to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and having a big rally there, which coincides with the correspondence dinner that he decided not to attend. So he's going to have his own party. And so we're going to go and talk to the people standing in line, and not to be snarky or cute or insulting in the slightest, uh, really, if you care about healthcare politics, then you want to hear all points of view and you want to show everyone the, the respect they're due. So this is an opportunity for just ordinary people, man in the street, woman in the street interviews, even children in the street interviews, to see what they have to say. And we'll be playing that on next week's show. But in the meanwhile, let's talk a little bit about courage. Courage. Just last week... We had the celebration of Patriot's Day up in Boston, and and if you're from Boston, you know this, and if you're not, uh, let me remind you that that is the celebration of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, 1775. A bunch of uh, British soldiers marched out of Boston to seize the arms and powder stores of the militia. 
and they had heard that they were all being stored in Concord and Lexington, and they marched out to go get it, and a number of uh, men came out with their long rifles and stood at Lexington Green and the North Bridge, and and the, the question is, certainly for me and for you, I hope, would you have had the courage to go with a musket, having probably never fought in a pitched battle, never really put your life on the line before, and stand there in the face of the most well-trained, most feared army in the world to stand for your beliefs. And while you're thinking about that, think about 1917, when 200 members of the National Women's Party were arrested at the White House. It was actually the first time that anyone had dared to protest at the gates of the White House. And 200 women fighting for something so outrageous as the right to vote were arrested. Their leaders were imprisoned, treated like they were insane, literally treated as if they were crazy people. Some of them went on a hunger strike and then they were force-fed. And this is at the same time when President Woodrow Wilson was lecturing the world about how the United States was going to make the world safe for democracy. If you were alive back then, would you have had the courage to go stand there in front of the gates of the White House? And think about the 1960s and the Freedom Riders. Once again, these are men and women who didn't have to go and risk their lives in the South to register people to vote and to speak up for the constitutional rights that had been given, yet not respected. And then think about March 7th, 1965, a date which has been called Bloody Sunday at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. John Lewis and others on one end of the bridge, knowing that on the other end of the bridge were police, state police with dogs and clubs, and a lot of people that weren't associated with police at all, but rather just didn't particularly think that equal rights for all was such a great idea. So imagine that you were there would you have had the courage, knowing that there was a good chance that you would be beaten, maybe killed, certainly arrested, would you have had the courage to do that, to walk across that bridge? Now think about 1980, and imagine yourself as a housewife and a mother with a passion for peace and a concern that the United States was engaged in a Cold War with the Soviet Union, where each side was building nuclear weapons at a faster and faster pace. And if you recall back in 1980, we were just beginning to really make our nuclear arsenal even more devastating because we were developing multiple warhead, multiple warhead nuclear weapons. In other words, one rocket would be able to carry 10 nuclear bombs, each one roughly shaped like a... uh, construction cone uh, and packed into a missile and we were going to launch them up and individually target them and what was a great uh, technological achievement was a hideous thing. Imagine you had the opportunity like that housewife in 1980 to do something about it but you might die in the process. At the very least you would be arrested 
and imprisoned for maybe the rest of your life, for all you knew. You had children. You had a, a husband that needed you. Would you be willing to make that very public statement and potentially have your fellow Americans, potentially have your fellow Americans stop for at least a moment to ask themselves, what are we doing? Here's a woman who is willing to stand up and risk it all just to say stop, to scream at the top of her lungs in, in her way, stop. Would you have had the courage to do that? Well, today we have on the show uh, a taped interview with, with that woman. We have a champion for peace and healthcare justice, one of the famous Plowshares 8. If you're a historian or you want to go Google it and look it up, Plowshares as in make our swords into Plowshares, Plowshares 8, who in 1980 uh, did walk into a nuclear warhead plant in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, armed with nothing but a few hammers and some bottles of their own blood, and went in and pounded on some of those re-entry vehicles, those cone-shaped things, and spilled their blood on the documents they found there. And Would you have had the courage to do that? I'm not so sure I would have. Because uh, some would call it treason. Others would call it something else. But we have on the show today Molly Rush, one of the survivors of the Plowshares 8. We're very glad to have her. She's a lifelong advocate of justice, anti-nuclear activist, a co-founder of the Thomas Merton Center, a mother, a wife, a friend, a neighbor, and patriot. And my politics are not terribly well disguised in in this show, and I I make no apology for that. But let me just say that I'm really humbled and honored to be able to do this interview. Uh, I don't know how much longer Molly will be with us, but when we had the march in Pittsburgh and across the country, actually across the world, all seven continents had people marching uh, on January 21st, the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated, Uh, A number of us were a little depressed because we had watched this inauguration happen the day before. But then we saw millions of our fellow citizens, many of whom had never marched for anything or put themselves out in the slightest for anything political. And they had shown up not just in Washington, but even in Antarctica. In Antarctica, there were people having a protest, uh, being heard. And so, as you'll hear during the interview, one of the reasons that I asked Molly Rush to come on the show was I wanted to have her share with us some of the thoughts that went through her head when she had to decide, do I risk my life? Do I risk my liberty? Do I risk the mother of my children to go and pound on a nuclear weapon in the King of Prussia? So when we come back, uh, be prepared for an incredible interview with Molly Rush, this is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. We'll be right back. Soaring costs and less access is where we evolve. From infant mortality to our lifespan. 
We're 37th in the world. I think we need a better plan. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You're bringing your daughter to her favorite pop star's concert. Do you A, wear earplugs? Isn't this fun, Dad? I have a soft pretzel. B, remember the moment with matching concert t-shirts. That's gonna be 180 bucks. Or we can just take a photo. C, show her how you used to do concerts. We're going crowd surfing. I can't, it's too heavy. Oh my God. Or D, just roll with it. Woo, Justin, look at us, we're over here. Justin, Justin, OMG, he just looks, I love you, Justin. I love you! When it comes to parenting, there are no perfect answers. But that's okay, because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit adoptuskids.org al. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times? 51. 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it and you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food, because 40% of all food in the US never gets eaten. Save the food, cook it, store it, share it, just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com, brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. When it comes to saving money, don't act like a baby. Goo goo gaga. Be the boss and make a budget. I'm the boss, baby. You're the boss of me. I am the boss of you. I'm not. M2. I'm not. M2. Need a little help? Aren't you going to do any work? I'm very busy delegating. Create a personalized savings plan. We can share. You obviously didn't go to business school. And get other tools and tips at feedthepig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, attorney and healthcare advocate. And many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain registration. Learn more about them by going to Pair.com. That's P-A-I-R.com. And today, our theme is the First Amendment. And just uh, in case you forget what the First Amendment says, it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And uh, we are inspired to do the show 
by the massive uh, peaceful demonstrations across the United States, and in fact, on all seven continents that occurred on January 21st, 2017, the day after President Trump was inaugurated. And I freely confess, I was marching in Pittsburgh, where an expected crowd of several hundred ended up being something like 15,000 or more, uh, including uh, many people who had obviously never marched before. It was interesting to see people who plainly had no clue what was happening, or but they, they felt like they had to be there. And that got me thinking about the history of protest in America, uh, where we've been, where we're going generally, and specifically res- with respect to health care justice. So when I thought about that, I, of course, was trying to decide who a, a good guest would be. And uh, Henry David Thoreau is unavailable, and... Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, not available. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., not available. So I went to the next best person I could think of, and we have on the telephone with us a really great American and champion of the First Amendment and justice, the right to free speech, free press, the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. We have on the telephone with us today Molly Rush. Molly, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. It's good to hear from you. Well, it's my pleasure, too, and it's a real honor. At some point here, we're going to talk about uh, your most famous uh, civil disobedience uh, thing, which is the Plowshare 8 from 1980. But we have the luxury of time, and as I mentioned to you when we chatted a little bit before the show, one of the things we do with healthcare politics with Steve Larchek is we just have one guest every week, and that gives us the luxury of time. You don't have to rush. You don't have to worry about the time. I'll tell you when we're, we need to take a break. But uh, I really want to talk a little bit about your history because uh, this is a show that people listen to across the country. Not everybody's heard of Molly Rush. I know that's hard to believe. But, but Molly, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and, and how you got started in, in justice and c- civil disobedience. Well, I was like most people. I I cared about things, and I, particularly watching television and watching the uh, civil rights movement, and this was, uh, you know, early 1960s, and no idea what to do, but so inspired by seeing young people at at the lunch counters nonviolently taking abuse and actual physical, you know, uh, attacks. And, uh, you know, I could just... You know, I thought, oh, my God, what can I do? And then, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, came to the fore, and I was, you know, really inspired. I still didn't know what to do till somebody came to my church and handed me a leaflet, and it said, join Catholic Interracial Council, send in your $5, which I did. And then I was invited to a meeting, and that just started me on the road to working because Number one, it's so important to know that justice work means building community and working with other people and finding ways to come to uh, understanding and to developing action. And so um, that's where I learned a lot about those kinds of things, being out on the picket line with, you know, leaders in Pittsburgh of the uh, very strong civil rights movement that was building. Uh, so, you know, I became on the board, and then I continued to, you know, worked on the newsletter. And uh, and then, 
you know, the Vietnam War was happening. Because I joined in 1963. In 65 or 6, my brother was in Vietnam. And I wrote to him and I said to him then, uh, Eddie, I want you to know that I'm marching against the war. I want you to hear it from me. And he wrote back, keep marching. <laughs> so, uh, so, of course, I was uh, more and more a- a concerned. And uh, the Catholic Interracial Council and a group of priests, the Association of Pittsburgh Priests, uh, and a group called the Religious Education Forum, we got together in 1970, formed a, a group that we called, uh, you ready for this? Cease. Catholics for an end to Asian slaughter and rec- <laughs> Asian slaughter and exploitation, okay. and uh, and that you know uh, was where we really began to actively uh, work, you know, as a group, and uh, you know it, it wasn't too long later that uh, about a year later, this was 1970, about 71, we said, well, we really need a full time place. I mean, we need to be an organization that can, you know, do something uh, on a consistent basis. So we rounded up money, 40 priests pledged 5 to $20. We, you know, got other friends helping. We decided to name it for the Thomas Merton Center because of the powerful writings on spirituality, but also on racism and nuclear weapons and uh, uh, the Vietnam War. He was a amazing proponent of uh, justice and peace. And so we became the Thomas Merton Center, opened our doors in 1972. Uh, I was a co-founder, and then a year later, a wonderful uh, organizer, Larry Kessler, moved to Boston, and he persuaded me to uh, take on the task of being the director, of which I knew nothing. I didn't know anything about office running an office or, you know, being head of an organization like that. <clears throat> but what I found was there were people who could who did know the, all these different things and who added their own, uh, not only their perspectives, which was important, but also their bodies and their acti- actions and their involvement and their day-to-day uh, support. So to me, that says something like where we are today. Um, because it's clear that this kind of thing is building and growing, and I don't think people are going to go away when they, because they've seen all that's happening with tearing down so many things that people have fought for for decades. Well, and it's getting, you know, with any <laughs> less than 100 days, you're seeing it every day after day, that happening. Well, Molly, uh, uh, this may seem like an impertinent question, but... When was the first time you were arrested? Ah, oh, I think I think it was in 1979. Uh, there's a group in uh, Washington D.C. called Sojourners. They publish a magazine and still publish it, and uh, they were sponsoring a, an action in Washington. So I went down and went to jail in D.C. for the first time uh, in a in a lockup with other people and. You know, I saw the horrors of jail, and I already knew something of that because we had a group called Vibrations 2 in Pittsburgh that visited prisoners. But, you know, the reality of being in a place like that and seeing how people were treated, you know, only 
I guess it just strengthened my commitment to uh, what was going on and, and, and gave me a sense of power that uh, somehow, you know, nonviolence uh, is power when it's acted on and when it's, uh, you know, continues to uh, be persistent, uh, that nonviolence is power. It's, it's just how most of the changes have happened for the good in this country. Well, what we're going to do is take a break and come back shortly. And when we do, I want to turn to uh, the Plowshare 8 experience, which is uh, famous. And so just stand by, and we'll be back with Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk and Molly Rush. Soaring costs and less access is where we evolve. You're listening to Win Workers Independent News, a diversified media enterprises production. I'm Doug Cunningham. Resist, resist, resist. That's a pledge that more and more organizations and just individual people in this country are taking up. This is another moment, like the Women's March, to demonstrate that we oppose all of these steps, frankly, that are in the direction of fascism, and we won't stand for that in this country. Los Angeles County Labor Federation Secretary-Treasurer Maria Elena Durazo explaining what the big May Day protest, Resist Los Angeles, is going to be about. Durazo says turnout for the May 1st protests in Los Angeles could top a million people. On May Day in L.A. and nationwide, there will be hundreds of actions to advocate for worker and union rights, to defend immigrants, and to uphold women's rights. The May Day protest actions are resist an extremist right-wing agenda, an agenda that lost the popular vote in America. And Tarasso says it will take more than these big protests to turn back the extremist right-wing agenda. She says it will take ongoing, one-by-one worker organizing in communities throughout the country. Our future, really, what kind of nation we're going to be depends on people taking action. I encourage us to not wait or expect some massive movement overnight is going to clear everything up and solve everything. It's that one-by-one conversation and organizing. So I encourage everyone to participate on May Day in one way or another. There's hundreds of events going on across the country, but don't stop there. We can't win with one day's events. Keep on, keep on, keep on. Now wins Joanne Powers has more labor news. Uncertainty in federal fiscal policy is creating a tenuous situation for U.S. jobs and the economy. That's the assessment of Howard University professor William Spriggs, chief economist for the AFL-CIO. Of course, we have a very unpredictable president, and he has not appeared to champion causes that favor job creation so far and doesn't seem to know how to work with Congress The agenda he has succeeded in moving so far has been to remove protections from workers. Sprague cites the president's federal hiring freeze and federal budget uncertainty as problems, as well as retail consolidation, with 89,000 retail jobs lost to the U.S. economy since October. This is the one example of the robots taking jobs because it's the end result of the moving of a lot of retail to e-commerce. It's not replacing low-wage jobs with high-wage jobs. Amazon doesn't pay very well, so this isn't an improvement in the economy. Wynn is made possible in part by the OPEIU, the Office and Professional Employees International Union. You've been listening to Wynn, Workers' Independent News. For more information, visit laborradio.org. 
Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. It had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger. Contact Food Bank of West Central Texas. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You're bringing your daughter to her favorite pop star's concert. Do you A, wear earplugs? Isn't this fun, Dad? I have a soft pretzel. B, remember the moment with matching concert t-shirts. That's going to be 180 bucks. Or we can just take a photo. C, show her how you used to do concerts. We're going crowd surfing. I can't. It's too heavy. Oh, my God. Or D, just roll with it. Woo, Justin! Look at us, we're over here! Justin, Justin! OMG! He just looked, I love you, Justin! I love you! When it comes to parenting, there are no perfect answers. But that's okay, because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit adoptuskids.org slash AL. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Is what it's and welcome back to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. And this week, our very special guest is Molly Rush. And of all the people that you might want to talk to about the history of uh, civil disobedience at the at the absolute street level and, and realistically, uh, not just in theory, but really getting out there and putting yourself on the line, I can't think of anybody better than Molly Rush. And Molly, you you were telling us during the last segment about how you got into uh, advocacy and justice issues, and uh, it was what's especially interesting to me is that you were you you were a mom, you were a person who had a household and kids and all this. How did you find the time to also get so involved in in justice issues? Well, much of what I did was during the day, <clears throat> although I went to evening meetings, but. I was very fortunate to have a mother <clears throat> who supported me and loved to have her children around. So, And then the, some of the older kids were able to uh, help with the younger ones. So that gave me some support. And my husband, you know, went right along with it. You know, he, he understood, too, even though baseball or softball was his <laughs> uh, <laughs> great uh, activity. In 1980... Uh, you were associated with a group that became known as the Plowshare Eight. And can you tell the listeners a little bit about the Plowshare Eight and, and what happened in 1980? Sure. I will start with, you know, what was going on at that time. It was the buildup on both sides of the Soviet Union and the uh, United States, and the uh, nuclear uh, bomb issue became right to the forefront. There were really uh, growing uh, opposition and uh, frustration that, uh, you know, we were on the verge of nuclear war every day, you know, uh, weapons pointed at each other that could be set off with and, you know, start a disaster around the globe for in 15 minutes. So um, I think one thing I, I remember was that I was sweeping my porch 
and these young kids were coming by, you know, maybe 10 years old from school. And I heard one little boy say, everyone says we're all going to die. And I went, wham! <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'd already been there, but hearing that and looking at my kids and thinking, you know, what can I do? And I was very fortunate to <clears throat> meet and come together with uh, people like Daniel and Philip Berrigan and others who had uh, persisted and, uh, you know, that Dan and Phil had uh, burned draft cards during the Vietnam War and became very well known for that. And so uh, I met with them at a retreat, and that was the time when we made a decision that we were going to do a direct action against nuclear weapons in some form. And uh, it turned out there was a group that had persisted at General Electric in uh, King of Prussia, PA, and they had uh, been protesting General Electric there because of their involvement in building first strike weapons, which made it all the more dangerous uh, and, you know, the possibility of war all the more likely. And so... Our plan was that we would go in carrying hammers, and some of them carried human blood in a baby bottle. I, I couldn't quite bring myself to do that. <clears throat> but we managed, We didn't know how we were going to get in. You know, it was all a prayerful, you know, just a strong sense that we had to do something. And so we walked into the door in the beginning of the day at this General Electric uh, Manufacturing uh, Building, and walked past a security guard and found ourselves finding and going to uh, a test area where there were uh, the um, missile, um, they were like little, it was amazing to me, they were like little, um, you know, little sign, you know, um, on the road where they, Cones, and you know the cones on the road where they mm-hmm. stop traffic, um, <clears throat> but these these looked not much, you know, a little wider, but you know, very low uh, and very small, and they were sitting on tables, being tested. They weren't armed, obviously, <clears throat> and so we, before anybody could stop us, we hammered on these uh, nuclear weapons, nu- nuclear uh, warheads, and. Um, I, I, you know, actually put a dent in one, and it just, it was the most powerful moment. And, of course, we were soon arrested and taken to jail and uh, uh, went on trial, and uh, I was charged with a number of charges, and I was eventually uh, found guilty of um, uh, three felonies. So... um, we went through the trial. We were uh, given sentences, and I received two to five years, which to me was, well, gee, that's not so bad as I was prepared to look at. And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, we, uh, I, the Sisters of Mercy actually got me out of jail, so I was home with my family until the trial. And, uh, and so... You know, it was a very powerful time because uh, people were frustrated and scared of nuclear weapons. And, you know, this sort of hit people in a way. 
And so um, it really became uh, a national story. Well, it certainly did, and our listeners uh, can purchase a book called Hammer of Justice by Leanne Ellison Norman, and the subtitle is Molly Rush and the Plowshares 8, and that's, that's you. Uh, let's just finish the story. Did you actually serve two to five years in jail? No, I didn't. Uh, I, I got out on bail and was, you know, uh, waiting trial. <clears throat> and uh, after our trial, we went through uh, n- a number of appeals, went all, all the way up to the state Supreme Court, which found against us, and then it was appealed to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. And it was, um, um, they turned it down the uh, case. And so we were sent back to, for resentencing. And we, a judge in the middle of Pennsylvania, uh, had the case to resentence us, and he said, well, 10 years ago, I would have sent you to jail, but, and then he let us go on time served. So I think that indicates how strong the opposition to nuclear weapons had become. A million people marching in, uh, at the UN in New York City against nuclear weapons. That's largely forgotten. But that was in the early 80s. Well, that was incredibly courageous of you, and it's sad to think that here we are 36 years later, and I'm afraid we're not much better off and maybe even worse off than when you had the courage to go in and take a hammer to that nuclear warhead. Uh, Well, you know, we have our uh, nuclear bombs today on uh, high alert, and they've been that way, you know, just very easy to uh, order a nuclear attack and vice versa to be attacked. And, of course, what's happening with North Korea and what's happening with the uh, attacks on attempts to end uh, the arms race, the most be- uh, recent being the terrible attacks on the uh, decision by the Iraq and the United States and other countries to... Um, to stop production of nuclear weapons in Iraq, which was, you know, really a very um, important moment that, you know, these were people who, uh, the Iranis, were not our friends, nor were the Soviets when Gorbachev and uh, uh, when that happened, that uh, the beginnings of uh, uh, agreements that, you know, prevented first testing uh, in the air, in the uh, atmosphere, and then, uh, you know, the beginnings of cutting back on nuclear production. Well, Molly, we're, uh, going, we're up against another break. We could go on and on. When we come back, I'd like to uh, ask you to give some advice to young people who are just now beginning to care about issues like healthcare justice and nuclear disarmament and things. So we'll be back in just a moment. This is Stephen Larchuk. Healthcare politics. Back in a moment. To our We're 37th in the world. I think we need a better plan. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times, 51, 52. 
When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Today we decided to walk to school. The light counted. 15, 14. 31? I mean, 13? We took a left on Carroll Street. Danny's smart, but he gets distracted. He realized he forgot his homework. I hope he doesn't have another bad day at school. When you can see learning and attention issues from their side, you can be on their side. That's why there's understood.org, a free resource for the parents of the one in five kids with learning and attention issues. Go from misunderstanding to understood.org. Brought to you by Understood and the Ad Council. This is Mario Andretti. You know me as a race car driver, but I'm also a Meals on Wheels volunteer. I've raced against the sport's biggest personalities, but I've never met more vibrant, amazing people than the seniors served by Meals on Wheels. You can make a difference by dropping off a hot meal and saying a quick hello. So, America, let's do lunch. Volunteer your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Imagine if I told you that an earthquake was going to hit tomorrow right where you live. That it would be 6.5 in magnitude with aftershocks occurring twice 25 minutes apart. You'd no doubt talk with your loved ones and you'd make a plan today. It's true, I can't tell you an earthquake will happen tomorrow. But what if it does? Shouldn't you have a plan? Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. It had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger. Contact Food Bank of West Central Texas. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. We are back on Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk and our very special guest today, Molly Rush. And Molly, uh, we just had a nice conversation about your experience with the Plowshares 8, and anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about can easily look it up on the Internet, which didn't exist back when you did this, uh, this act of civil disobedience back in 1980. But... You and I met uh, working on health care justice, and uh, it turned out that on January 21st of 2017, you and I were in the same place, although we didn't know it, and that was the march in Pittsburgh, which was just one of hundreds of marches, not just around the United States, but around the world. Uh, the principal uh, issue was women, but really it was more generally justice. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people were there who obviously hadn't done this sort of thing before. And I wanted to take advantage of having you on the show so you could sort of speak to those people, not just young people, but certainly young people, but also 
people that were like you back in the 60s, uh, married, raising kids, a whole lot of other things to do, but you took the time and you felt the, the need to get out there. So if, if you had a room full of people eagerly looking at you for some advice, what would it be? What advice would you give? Well, you have to understand that the Thomas Merton Center is still around after 45 years. And the uh, persistence, I think, is the first thing that uh, strikes me. Um, you just, you know, when we started talking about single-payer health care, people didn't know what that meant. Uh, People would say, there's not a chance, you know, and we kept going. You wrote the bill for a, a single-payer system in Pennsylvania, which is still uh, being worked for and, you know, and needs really all the help we can get. But it's a matter of building community, and I've made the best friends in the world from uh, working for peace and justice, and, uh, and persistence. Now we've done this. What's our next step? What's our next step? How can we build? How can we reach out? How can we really make a, a movement happen? And the important thing about this is that people were protesting not only after the, uh, the inauguration, but, you know, when this health care bill came up, uh, just the energy and the, you know, anger and the, attempts to, um, you know, tell their story at, at protests and at hearings. And, and uh, it was just amazing to see that actually Congress people went back to their uh, home, uh, you know, where, where they represent, and that, you know, they were, you know, many of them were intimidated, I think. And so um, I think that 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 story is to take your anger and put it into uh, action and then keep at it. We've had that bill in Pennsylvania for over 10 years. I don't remember exactly the one that you wrote. There's been a bill in Congress 676 for even before that, and it, I think they were all looked at as hopeless. But let me quote from you for you a uh, article that appeared in the Post Gazette on Saturday. It's by Charles Krauthammer, who is a very, very conservative writer, and the headline is "The Road to Single Payer Health Care." People are learning even that there is such a thing as single payer health care, which is, exists all over the country. And what he wrote was, it wouldn't take, it won't take much for the Democrats to abandon that Rube, he calls it that Rube Goldberg wreckage, that means the Obamacare bill, and go for simplicity and universality of Medicare for all. And then he says, don't be surprised if in the end single payer wins out. And this is not something he likes. He says, talk about disruption, about kicking over the furniture, that would be an American Krakatoa. But <laughs> the fact that he recognizes that we have a different time, a different moment in which it's possible to not only talk about saving Obamacare, but going the next step, which I think Obama would have liked to have gone. But, there, you know, it was impossible to to talk about single-payer health care in the, uh, in the, you know, the uh, kind of atmosphere there was at that time. So be, be building. And uh, 
getting into uh, what we're doing right now is setting up town or uh, meetings and trying to get people to see the film uh, Fix It, which is a wonderful description of what single payer is all about. And then becoming part of our movement, we have a group that's called, and I'll tell you what the uh, website is, it's called healthcareforallpa.org. Uh, the four is the number four. So it's healthcare for number four, allpa.org. Well, Molly, it's, it's, it sounds to me like your your strongest message is keep it up. That's now, right. Absolutely. The, and you, build with others. And cross uh, lines that, uh, you know, with people you don't necessarily agree with on a lot of things and try to focus on, on you know, where uh, people can come together and then begin to work with other groups. And well, that's been our, pro- our process in the Merton Center. And we have, do- you know, a couple dozen projects that work on all kinds of peace and justice issues. Well, I'm going to tell a little story on you, Molly. Uh, I remember uh, George W. Bush was coming to Pittsburgh to make a speech about something, and, and you decided to protest. And I read about this in the paper. We decided. <laughs> well, you and some others, but uh, at least by the newspaper account, uh, you were in an area near the convention center in Pittsburgh where the president was going to speak, and the police came to you and they begged you to go to the designated free speech area. And you declined to go to the designated free speech area, and so you, you were arrested again. And I remember when I read that story and heard about it, I said, wait a minute, I thought the whole country was a free speech area. <laughs> And mercifully, you, you were released. But I, I was thinking, there's Molly doing what we all should be doing. And so uh, th- it's really terrific that you've come on the show. I, I want to encourage people to learn more about you and, and from that be inspired to have some courage. I mean, you, when you went into that uh, facility in King of Prussia with your hammer and the, the Berrigan brothers, I mean, you could have been killed. I mean, they could have shot you for that. Uh, they've shot people for a lot less in this country. Yet you, my, my you, brother said, "Why don't you hang yourself up on a cross in the front yard instead of going there?" Well, and I said, "What would the neighbors say?" <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's courage, and I, I think the people that are just getting into this the resistance movement and getting out there to talk about uh, health care reform. And going to the town hall meetings uh, and, and really putting the feet of the, our Congress people to the fire, that has made all the difference. Uh, do you agree yes, with that? It, has. it It really, it, it's making a difference and people have to keep it up. And you've been at this 50 or more years. Yeah. And you're, you're saying keep it up. This, the, the job will never end. We have to keep working on this and... And we have to conclude at this point. Uh, it's been a thrill and an honor to have you on the show, and I'm glad you made the time to do it. Is there any parting words you'd like to give the audience? I'd just say, keep it up. Don't give up. Because look, look at what happened with the gay rights movement. Well, that, know, that came out of the well, blue, didn't it? That and was... then they, uh, you know, agreement to allow gays to marry. Boom. I it, mean, that... So that it can happen. Shows that things 
can go on and on, and then all of a sudden you see a change. All right. Well, thank you so much. We're going to go to a break, and when I come back, I'll have some final words. Thank you very much, Molly Rush. You are an American institution. Thank you for everything you've done. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics, back in a moment. One of the dirty little secret all over this land. A free market monster with invisible hands. When it comes to saving money, don't act like a baby. Goo goo gaga. Be the boss and make a budget. I'm the boss, baby. You're the boss of me. I am the boss of you. Or not. M2. Or not. M2. Need a little help? Aren't you going to do any work? I'm very busy delegating. Create a personalized savings plan. We can share. You obviously didn't go to business school. And get other tools and tips at feedthepig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Single payer is what it's called. And we're back with just some final words. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. And I... I'm so thrilled that Molly Rush gave us the time, and I hope uh, you got something out of that. Uh, it's something I'm going to listen to over and over. But before we sign off, I, th- I would be remiss if I didn't mention the other seven of the Plowshare Eight. You've heard from Molly Rush, but of course the other seven were Philip Berrigan, Father Daniel Berrigan, Sister Ann Montgomery, Elmer Moss, Dean Hammer, Father Carl Cabot and John Schuchart. And I'm honored to say there was a lawyer in there, too. So we're not all bad. Let me just say uh, it's been a, a great show and a great uh, lead into the future for us. Many thanks to our national sponsor who has made this really possible Pair Networks, world class web hosting and domain name registration. You can learn more about them at pair.com, P A I R.com. Our music has been courtesy of Mike Stout. Our producer and booker is Dr. Ann McGeary. Engineering and technical support is provided by TUE Media. Please visit our website if you want to listen to our previous shows on podcast. Go to healthcare-politics.com. That's healthcare-politics.com. And next week we're going to do something... uh, without a net here. We're going to go up to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with a digital recorder. We're going to interview people who are attending the Donald Trump celebration of 100 days. And our objective there is to listen, not argue, not uh, try and show anybody up. We really want to listen to really what's the other side of the story. There are going to be tens of thousands of people there who think that Donald Trump has it exactly right. So let's let's hear what they have to say and let's let's honor them and honor ourselves in the process. So that is next week and we'll try and do that and uh, it'll be a lot of raw footage and it'll be just like you were there uh, having that conversation with people. As Martin Luther King said, of all forms of injustice, inequality in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. Dare to be reasonable. We look forward to having you back for weeks, months, maybe years to come. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. We're going to sign off a few minutes or a few seconds early just so you can listen to the rest of Mike Stout's great song. One of the dirty little secrets.
secret all 